Hello, welcome to another EMA podcast. Um, this is another podcast in, in the series about the dynamic workplace where we're you know, talking about the changes that have happened or been accelerated over the, over the last few years in terms of the place of work, the time of work, and you know, some of the themes that come out from that in terms of leadership and culture. Um, today, I, I'm very pleased uh, to ha- have with me uh, Dr. Ellen Joan Nelson. Uh, now, Ellen and I first actually came into contact with each other when we were uh, looking at the four-day work week and other alternative working working patterns. Um, and Ellen uh, particularly spoke to a webinar of ours uh, about uh, work school hours. Uh, but in conversation with, with Ellen, I've, I've discovered that there's a, a much wider portfolio of interests that she has and, and research that she's done and practical experience. So I thought it'd be really good to spend a little more in-depth time with her. So um, before we get into sort of questions about that, I thought it'd be really good if Ellen introduced herself. So Ellen, thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me, John. I'm really excited to be here. Um, So I'm Ellen. Hi. Uh, My, in brief, uh, background in the military. So I was incredibly lucky. I spent 10 years in the New Zealand Army as an engineer officer. I then uh, left the army, I did an MBA and my PhD around leadership experiences, Uh, worked at NZTE, Trade and Enterprise, as a business consultant, uh, and PTS Logistics in the middle of those two, and now I run my own business uh, as a speaker and consultant in the leadership space. And I have two beautiful little boys. Oh, fantastic. That, that sounds great. So there's a, 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 quite a wealth of different experiences there <laughs> and um, some, some experiences there that I'm sure stand you in good stead for, for looking after those two boys as well. Um, but, uh, you know, with, within that, you, you, you know, you mentioned about sort of leadership and um, clearly, you know, in terms, of, in terms of your time in the, in the army, in the military, um, there's, there's a, a quite an interesting story I, I read about some work that you did. And I, I think it'd be useful if you kind of told us about that in your own words. Yeah, sure. Is this about the Afghanistan evacuation? Exactly. That was exactly what I was thinking <laughs> of. If you have something that's even more interesting than that, do tell us. But but that story stood out to me. But I'm just interested to hear directly from you about it. Yeah, sure. So I so I mentioned I started my career in the yeah, army. Yes. And I was very lucky. I got to serve in Afghanistan for seven months during 2010 and 11. So. Yep. a while ago. And when I was there, um, I managed a team which included five Kiwi soldiers who were fantastic and also 15 locals. And we were a team. So it wasn't sort of the Kiwis and the locals. It was we were the engineer team of 21 of us. And we did so many cool construction projects in the community. And we spent time together. We ate food together. And yeah, they're just amazing people. Anyway, fast forward to uh, August 2021. Um, devastating news that the Taliban had taken over in Afghanistan. And what that meant is that everyone who had worked for a foreign uh, government uh, was at risk. And so one of those team members contacted me and said, Ellen, please can you help? I said, I have absolutely no idea how to do that. But yeah, of course I will. I'll do everything that I can uh, to help. And Uh, depending on how much detail you want, over the space of kind of the next almost year, um, this turned into, or it kind of snowballed into the biggest, most emotionally draining, challenging, complex task I've ever been involved in in my life. Um, I was 
just amazingly lucky to be supported by a fantastic team. So it was not the Allen Show, it was a team of us and many others who supported us. But over yeah, almost a year, we managed to get to New Zealand every person that we got a visa for. So 563 Afghan people are now in New Zealand um, safely. Fantastic. So it's a, a, a tremendous sort of hum, humanitarian in, in, endeavour that, you know, you know, really outstanding results, you know, in terms of achieve for that and, um, you know, very moving to hear about that. I, um, I'm interested in that from the point of view of, you know, you've had the, you'd had the military experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd then come out of the military by this point and had the academic experience yes. around that. And I'm just interested in how those two sort of worlds sort of came together to help you and, and other people in that team lead that, that project? Yeah, so it's funny. So my team, um, which included uh, Chris Parsons and also Martin Dransfield, and they, they have a military background as well. So the four of us on the team all had served in the New Zealand Army. We had all served in Afghanistan. So that was kind of a great, I guess, starting point. We had sort of a common language, a common understanding of... I guess, thought processes and strategic thinking and coming through challenging problems. So that was kind of our, our, our common base. But the academic side, um, I'm, I'm not sure if that did play a big part. I guess hopefully I learned a bunch of stuff during my MBA and PhD, so I guess that was useful. But it was interesting during the task it just sort of felt like this has got nothing to do with my my business, my life, my experience. This is just this point in time that these people that I care about need me and and I just need to do that. And by some kind of a miracle, and the miracle really includes my three teammates um, and amazing government officials we collaborated with, yeah, we managed to to do it so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, t- oh, tremendous so you know you, you mentioned your two colleagues you mentioned the need to collaborate with a range of uh, officials in in different institutions and and um, organizations so um you, you know and in terms of this i guess um the sort of thing that our our members that might be listening to this and other business owners are thinking about is okay so there's some similarities actually to running a business there in a sense because you know often we are working with people that we've had some sort of shared shared background with and we, we know in terms of leading the business um, we know where we're, we're having to deal with a range of different other organizations often things that come from government in a legislative sense and so forth and having to work work through that with different different agencies um, and we have to kind of make some decisions around our leadership style and what, what we're going to do. What, what you know, from, from your experience, what, what sort of things kind of perhaps stand out about leadership style that you think are really important? Yeah, so, and just interrupt me if I go on for too long because yeah. I'm passionate about this topic. Um, so actually, after we finished this evacuation task, I wrote a, a short article. And so if anyone's interested, it's on my website. But it was kind of the nine leadership lessons to come out of this task. So I won't do all nine of them now, but <laughs> yeah. if anyone's interested, they're, they're on the website. But it was kind of almost a cathartic process writing this. So I, as I said, I had this experience as a leader in the military. Yes. I did then research about leadership. And I became, completely separately to this Afghanistan task, really passionate and excited about this idea that 
I think we can do work differently. I think we can do leadership differently and I think we can make it better for people and for the organisation. So I am pragmatic. I know that doing nice things for people means, you know, jack shit unless it's going to make money. It needs to be commercially viable. And so I got, yeah, excited about this idea that I think we can do people stuff better at the same time as the profit stuff. And so what I realised is that this Afghanistan evacuation task, while it never set out for it to be this way, but it kind of became this great case study because what I realised, and I can share some of the, the outcomes, is that the way we operated as a team actually really reflected so many of these things that I believe about leadership and how to get the best out of people and how to achieve great outcomes and make people feel good about themselves. We effectively had had done that and it was so it's yeah it's this kind of neat case study and I can cheers I'll shut up for a sec but I'll no no up. that's that that's great I guess um you know with, within this I mean maybe if there were two or three things that you think these these are the things that I really feel are the most significant learnings from it that apply then in a business setting as well where you're recognizing that we can do things differently, which is which is really what we're kind of trying to challenge people around with this podcast series, which is about um, it's not going to be enough to keep doing the way we've always done things. We know there's greater challenges these days. So how could people do things differently to get the best from their people, but also get the best for their business? Absolutely. So, yeah, I'll sort of share the three kind of main ones. So the first one is around this concept of ditch the nine to five. Right. So uh, you mentioned at the introduction, I, I'm pushing a movement called Hashtag Work School Hours. It's mm-hmm. based on my PhD and then postdoctoral research about the experiences of working parents and how it's near impossible <laughs> to be a worker <laughs> and be a parent. And so uh, this research that I have is all about how do you get rid of the idea that you get paid for your hours or that number of hours you do equates to the value you contribute to the organisation actually let's turn turn that around and think about outputs. So what are the deliverables that we do? And then give people the flexibility and autonomy to do that on a schedule that works for them. It started about children, so you know, sorry, parents or people that have kids, but actually any human being who has something they care about outside of work. If you give them more flexibility and autonomy and focus on their deliverables, you will get so much better productivity out of them and they'll be so much happier and therefore contribute more positively to the organisation. So linking that to this Afghan story, so our team, and look, I, I, I talk about work school hours. You know, I was not working school hours. We were working in the middle of the night. This was, this was around the clock. But I'm, I'm not a hypocrite. What we were demonstrating is that we were doing the tasks in and around our lives. We never said to each other as a team, right, these are the hours that we're going to work together. It was just about these are the outputs we're going to deliver. Also, we all did it remotely. So the four of us have never been in the same room together at the same time. We did most of this via Zoom. And so I also don't, you know, people say, oh, you can't have good culture unless you're all at the office together. I think bullshit because actually there are definitely ways to create culture beyond the office. So what we demonstrated is that we achieved what I'm hoping people can see on the face of it was a pretty complex, challenging task. And we did it focusing on the outputs or the deliverables we agreed to each other and on flexibility and, flexibility and autonomy to do that in and around our lives. So I think that's kind of the first lesson that came out of this. The second one is... Um, 
something that is really near and dear to me, which is around diversity and inclusion, which ties in with authenticity. So diversity is about having you know diverse range of experiences and thoughts at the table, uh, but diversity by itself means jack shit unless you've also got inclusion. And inclusion means that the person doesn't have to fit in, the person can actually be their authentic self. They can show up entirely them, the unique, you know, all of us are unique freaks in our own way <laughs> to bring our full selves to work. And when you feel that you really belong and that you're valued as your unique self, gosh, you perform your best work. And so I, I passionately believe about the, the power of having diverse perspectives and encouraging people to feel valued and included. And so again, back to this Afghanistan task, it was this amazing example. So the four of us in our team, we all had a military background, but aside from that, we were actually really diverse. So the surface level diverse factors, we were, you know, it was three guys and myself, so we had gender diversity, we had diversity of age, so two of us generation Y through to a Gen X and a baby boomer. Um, we had diversity in terms of ethnicity. They're all kind of surface level, but more, far more relevant is we had diversity of our personalities. Yep. So we were really different in the way that we thought. We were really different in our personalities, our approaches, our experiences. And because this task was so complex, you know, we were dealing with the media, we were dealing with um, you know, some really amazing government officials. We were raising money. We were trying to facilitate border crossings in <laughs> Afghanistan. We were liaising with the families. And diversity was not a nice to have. It was mission critical. There's no way we would have done this task with a bunch of Allens. We needed those diverse perspectives. <laughs> but the bit that was important is that we were so inclusive of each other. So my team saw me at my worst. You know, I cried during this task on a lot of occasions. It was emotional. Mm -hmm. They saw me rant and be furious about things. And we all saw each other in our lows. But because we felt comfortable and safe to bring our full selves, which includes, you know, warts and alls, the lows, it also meant we could bring out the best of ourselves. And we needed to bring our A game to achieve this task. And because we really valued and included each other, you know, we had robust discussions. We didn't agree on everything, but we respected each other and we made good decisions because of it. So I guess they're kind of the two main things is, is ditch the nine to five, think more flexibly <laughs> and output focused, and really focus on including people and allowing them to bring their diverse and authentic selves. That's but, a big answer. Sorry, John. No, that's, that's fantastic. There's so many things that you sort of sort of raised that I think are, think are important to, to, to businesses around, you know, really recognising, you know, what is it that's kind of mission critical? How do we, how do we get to be focused on productivity and outputs yes. rather than impacts? How do we best uh, leverage the diversity of people um, in whatever way you want to think about that? in order to get a better better outcome um, so there was there was one particular point that I, I almost wanted to step in oh, and ask sorry. you about because it comes up a lot from our members in fact we do a maturity assessment where we we look at what are the key business needs for our for, for our from an HR perspective uh, of our members and um, the thing that stands out as being the biggest thing that people are saying to us is the business need to address is to do with culture and engagement in, in the organisation. Yes. So, um, you know, when you, you talk about, um, you know, leadership, you know, that goes straight always, I think, to culture and engagement. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, what what what, what would you suggest, uh, or in terms of the work that you're doing with organisations now, what do you see as being, well, first of all, I'm interested, do you see that as a key issue at the moment in organisations? And then secondly, what, what sort of things are organisations doing to get their culture and engagement right? Yes, so yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> this is near and dear to me, and I'm excited yeah, yeah. by what you've just said. I totally agree. Um I think there used to be kind of the old adage, um, I'm being a little bit mean here, where bosses might be like, well, I'm not paying my staff to be happy, I'm paying them to do their job. And that's what matters, that they, they deliver their outputs and kind of happiness is not so relevant. I'm being a little bit, obviously, unkind. Yeah. Not everybody's like that. But we now know there is so much research that genuinely links staff happiness to profits. The happier your staff are, the more engaged your staff are, the less stressed they are, the, the better they feel when they, and I say feelings, I know people used to think, oh, feelings are, you know, that kind of happy, clappy, touchy, feely stuff. That stuff matters. When people feel good and have a good culture, gosh, they will perform well. And, you know, if you have people that are not engaged, they are not producing anywhere near as much or in terms of their performance or contribution to profit as someone who's engaged. So if organisations want to, you know, there's a commercial ROI for this, if they want to make more money, they need to invest more on making sure that the culture is great so that people feel good when they come to work and do their best. That's fantastic. I mean, I think, um, you know, that, that sort of thing that people are aiming for about getting the culture better because that will lead to pe- people working better. I think it then starts to become, okay, so on a practical level, what are the levers I should start to kind of pull um, and to, to get that to happen? You've mentioned, for example, autonomy in the, in the workplace yeah. uh, as being something that's key. And that's certainly something I've seen come through research too. But So tell me more about autonomy and other sort of practical things that people can do in their organisations to get that engagement, to get the culture better, to get the better results. Yeah, sure. So I kind of feel that leaders need to, create an environment where their staff can thrive. And there's mm. three key things on this. One is around autonomy, which we've and yep. I'll go on a, bit, a little bit more practical examples. The second is to make people feel they belong, which I've yeah. touched on that as well. The third one, which I didn't mention, but it also came out of the Afghan task, is people need to feel that they have a purpose and what they do matters. So how do you tangibly or practically implement these three things? I think on the autonomy one, it's actually talking with your staff. So don't just have blanket shifts and blanket rosters and blanket hours just because that's what we've always done. Actually talk with your team and find out what can make a positive impact on your life. And, you know, if someone has children, it might be to work around their kids. Uh, my little brother uh, doesn't have children, he, but he's an athlete. I'm very proud of him. He did an Ironman. I just wanted to brag. You and Ford, he's very cool. Um, but he would love it if, you know, he was had flexibility to do his training during daylight hours. So the first one is actually just talk to your staff and say, what, what could make your life tangibly better and how might we make this work? The staff will be able to figure it out. It's not, you don't... Um, the staff don't give the leader the problem. The staff will create the solution as well. So I think that's the first thing around autonomy is talk to your staff about how could working differently make their lives better. And just a really simple thing, you know, I talked to one woman who her workplace changed some things and she was able to then pick her kids up from school two days a week. Previously she couldn't at all. She said that was a game changer mm. for her happiness in life. An absolute game changer. And so that's, I think there's some really easy things that businesses can do there. The second one around this idea of belonging, which is how do you encourage people to be their authentic selves? I think 
you start with yourself. So how many of us kind of put on our like our professional face when we come to work and think that we've got to be, I don't know, this idea of what a professional leader is. Just cut that out. The best leader anyone can be is being themselves. So start by, you know, you be you, and that actually encourages other people to be themselves. Uh, and then the purpose one, um, and so I can go into that in more detail if you want, but the, the third one around purpose is... Some people's jobs are, you know, they might be a particular task that, and sometimes it's even repetitive. Or, But the leader's job is to make that person understand how what they do is important to the, the overall organisation. So saying, hey, you know, you do this data input. That matters. You know, when you do that, it enables the next person up to make really sound decisions, which means our business can achieve this objective. And so when you make every person within the organisation the piece that they do, make it really clear that what they do matters and how it links into the overall purpose, people feel far more motivated. Absolutely. So uh, autonomy, so yes. sort of getting people to, I suppose, not just bring you the problem, but bring you the solution as well and work yes. with them but the, I'm on that. But belonging, which seems to be about like being yourself at work, knowing what that is and giving other people permission to be themselves at work in, in that way. And then purpose, which seems to be about linking what they do at an individual level through to what the overall aim of the organisation is um, and what the organisation is trying to achieve. And that one, it's interesting to me at the moment in particular because what, what, I, what I see is uh, perhaps during COVID... Uh, because of the challenges of that, some some of the stuff around you know being really clear about the you know the task that you do and the job that you do, how that links to the team, links to the overall organisation objectives. That that sometimes that sort of management of performance around that, and I mean that in the very positive sense of managing performance, like helping people to do better. Some of that has kind of gone. Some of the disciplines around that have gone. Some of the thoughts around that have gone. How how could um, you know what advice would you have given that uh, if I take your Af- Afghan experience you know you're asking people to do tasks there for a much bigger sort of purpose there yes. like you know how we translate that into organizations for organizations where there's perhaps not such strong emotional content to it but how you kind of go okay this is my task this is the overall purpose of the organization how, how can managers and leaders help people see that link better yeah that's a good question so and I don't kind of have the one-size-fits-all yeah, answer, yeah. but I almost think this is going to sound a little mean, but if leaders can't do that, that's a problem. Mm. You know, it, it shouldn't actually be that trickier a question mm, to answer. Mm, the mm. leader, if they are asking a person in their team to deliver an outcome, it should be really clear, well, why are they asking them to do that and what is the purpose of it? And I think people, people are asking why more mm. now than I think mm. they have in the past. Mm. So why am I doing this task? Or why do I have to do it that way? Mm. Or why do I have to do it in this location or during these hours? And so leaders are maybe being confronted a little bit more than they have in the past. But I don't think that's, I mean, that can be scary, but I think that's an exciting opportunity because people people want to do well. You know, mm. there's maybe a, a small percentage who are milk it and, and they're kind of use, yeah, I mean. not particularly great contributors. But the majority of people do. They want to do a good job. They want to contribute positively. So when leaders answer those questions of why, it and not empower, I don't like the word empowers, but it kind of encourages these people to find out, okay, well, now I understand why I'm doing that. Maybe I could do it better. 
Yeah. And maybe I could change this and do it in a way that's more efficient or, or more helpful. So now that I understand what the overall outcome is, I can now think about, yeah, the piece that I do could maybe more positively contribute to that. So I know that's maybe a waffly answer, but I think, yeah, if a, if, a, if a leader is asking a staff member to do something and they don't understand how that links to the purpose, that's a problem. And well, then why are they asking the staff member to do that task? Yeah, I, I don't think that's waffly at all because I think it actually links very much back from the sort of point about sort of purpose to the sort of autonomy ideas you spoke to earlier <laughs> and talking about, well, you know, people take responsibility for things. People want to do a good job. You seem to have a very strong focus on seeing the best of people and wanting yes. to then sort of sort of bring that out. So that's your maybe your bit around the centre, around <laughs> the belonging and the bringing your authentic self to it. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things there that people can start to, as, as leaders can start to think about in terms of sort of uh, perhaps trusting staff more than they have in the past or asking for staff's view a little bit. I think for some leaders that can feel a little bit confronting and can be a little bit nervous because it's not the way that, you, that you've done things. Yeah. You know, what, what sort of things would you say to leaders that are feeling a little uncomfortable about doing this? Yeah, I love that question, John. So first of all, that's okay, right? As <laughs> yeah. leaders... We've all been used to doing things the way we do things where we can kind of, we can see our staff, we know what they're doing. Well, we, sorry, we can see them, so we think we know what they're doing. And now it's a little bit different and it's a little bit scary. But I think the way you can build that trust up, because trust is mutual, right? It goes both ways. So if you talk to your staff member and say, this is what I need to be achieved, and this is the standard I need it to be done and the, the date that I need it to be completed by, and then give the staff member the opportunity to demonstrate they can achieve that. And maybe do a check-in, say, a week later, did they deliver it? And if they didn't, well then, okay, maybe you need to communicate the expectations more clearly, or maybe that staff member, you know, does need some uh, kind of management around doing that. But if you kind of build it up slowly, like let the staff member prove that they can do it. Check in, did it work? Oh, okay. And then so the leader can start to gain confidence that if I assign this task member to a staff, sorry, t- assign this task to a staff member, I actually now know that they'll go away and do it because they've demonstrated it. And I think you can just kind of have, have check-ins. So it's not saying people are now having more autonomy and the leader has no idea what's going on and it's hands-off. That's not the case at all. It's getting really clear from the leader, what do you want achieved? Check in with the person that that has been achieved and then you just you build up trust and both people will end up being happier. <laughs> and the leader will find that they're happier too because they don't have to micromanage. No, micromanaging's not fun. Right. So there's there's some real sort of benefits, actually, you're, you're suggesting for leaders. Some of the things that perhaps they don't like doing so much can be taken off them by, by doing this. A- absolutely. And it just, I get excited. Sorry, I do <laughs> yeah. see, I, I see the best of people and I do get passionate. But I think, you know, when people feel trusted, gosh, it makes them feel good about themselves. You know, and they don't actually want to let their leader down. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, cool, my leader actually trusted me to do this. I want to demonstrate that again because that makes me feel good. And it's just this... Yeah, virtue, virtue sort of circle between autonomy, isn't it, and purpose and belonging. You've kind of got all those uh, components in in place and they kind of drive each other on. I love that. I do think those three things link. Yeah, yeah. Um, One other thing I was going to say about it, and I talked on the word feelings before. Mm. So uh, Brene Brown, who I'm a bit of a fan of, That's an understatement. Um, So she, it's not even her quote, it's someone else's, but she said it in a podcast about, we used to think that people were thinking-based creatures who sometimes had some feelings. (laughs) We now know, and there's all this neuroscience research to show it's the other way around, we are feelings-based creatures who sometimes do some thinking. And so 
when you can connect people from a heart point of view and a feelings point of view, and I know this sounds all wishy-washy, but it matters, people will work so much harder when they have a an emotional connection to why they are doing something. So when they, they feel good at work because they feel they belong as themselves, they feel good at work because they have some autonomy over how and when they do it, they feel good because what they're doing matters, they will perform so much better. And I think even kind of the toughest person who thinks, oh, I don't care about feelings, if, if they are honest with themselves and think about when have they done their best work, it's when they felt good. Yeah. It's when they felt that what they did mattered. And that would seem that that, to go back to your story at the beginning about, about Africa, Afghanistan, you know, that was such a mixture of feelings and passion that I, I feel from you and hear from you around that um, because it was so, so you know, important in terms of people's lives, that alone as some sort of business output. Um, and so there's that kind of passion there. But there clearly had to be this these great sort of organisational and task-based skills that you and your colleagues brought, brought to bear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so... I mean, yeah, the purpose was really clear, right? Yeah. We we felt that our country had the obligation <laughs> to help these people. Yes. And so, and for me personally, you know, I knew a lot of the guys that we mm. helped. And so that, that feelings thing was really clear. But the task we were doing, I mean, I'm, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was hard. You know, it took, it genuinely took a pretty big toll on my mental health. Yeah. Um, you know, we were doing some pretty tedious stuff in the middle of the night. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't fun. Mm. But I often found that, I was doing these tasks that I wasn't enjoying, A, because the purpose was clear. I wanted mm-hmm, to help these people. Mm-hmm. But I was also doing it because I didn't want to let my teammates down. Yes. So I genuinely believed this. Even though the purpose was clear, if we had a poor culture, mm. I don't think we would have sustained this. In fact, mm. I'm pretty confident. You know, we were, we were giving a heck of a lot of ourselves in terms of our time, our heart, our mental health. You don't do that for, you know, 10 months straight. Mm. If you're not happy with the people you're working with. But because we had this amazing culture between the four of us where we cared about each other and we valued each other, we would go the extra mile, partially for the purpose of the task to help these families, but actually was also for each other. So that's why culture is so important. Yeah, so I, I guess in you know in some sense people would say, well, that's what you want people to be so passionate about what they're doing in the workplace that they're prepared to bring bring their whole selves to it and put in extra effort as needed and to really sort of push themselves to to achieve things because they believe in you know the overall output they're going to do to. Um, support their colleagues in in doing that and feel really happy and involved as part of the team but you hinted at some downsides of that there around the sort of well well well-being side and that you know that that is um something that we know is is very much on on business owners minds at the moment around you know the sort of consequences for people particularly at the moment where everyone's short-staffed and for for one reason or another in the sense of sometimes it's long-term short-staffed because you can't find people sometimes it's short-term because people are off sick more people are off sick for one reason or another so that that kind of well-being piece how um, well were, were there any particular things that that you did as a team to look after your own and others' well-being in the team? And with those things, are they similar things that people could apply in in, in offices and factories now in Auckland? Yeah, that's an an awesome question. So there's two parts to this answer that I'm going to give. So the first part is actually saying where this task was was different to the average job. So <laughs> you know, I I did sacrifice my my mental health, my sleep. You know, but I did it because it was life or death. Mm. So 
what I would firstly say is most jobs are not that. Mm. So so don't sacrifice your mental health <laughs> because actually no one's going to die. Mm. And without being dramatic, that was not the case for this task. Yeah. So, you know, you I was prepared to sacrifice so much more because of mm. the high stakes. So acknowledging that that is not reflective of most <laughs> tasks. So so you don't need to do that. The other thing I would say is the I think the the leader's job is to look after the well-being of their staff. Mm. And often it's easy for leaders to think, oh, well, if we have flexible working staff, we'll milk it and they won't. It's more likely to go the other way. It mm. really is more likely that staff will overwork and overcommit because they are appreciative of that flexibility. So the leaders actually have to put in place some real safeguards to make sure that people don't then you know, get burnt out and overdo it. And then in terms of your question, what did our team do? So this was, again, it was a high stakes, high stress environment, but we did fun stuff. So yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I'm I overshare. I like made a couple of ridiculous rap videos for right. my team <laughs> just to try and make them laugh and to do something that was stupid and ridiculous and fun and not related to what was actually a really gruelling hard task. When we had our team meetings, you know, we would cover the, the tasks, which was, again, not exactly a happy topic, but then we would we'd talk shit and we'd laugh at each other. I mean, we took the piss out of each other. We would share funny memes. We would, in fact, fun is one of the nine lessons in this article <laughs> right. I talked about is even if the task is not fun, how do you, how do you create fun out of it so that people have that, that kind of happy culture which helps their well-being? So we weren't really able to help each other on the sleep front because the task demanded differently of us, but we were able to help each other from a mental health point of view by creating some joy for each other in what was a tricky time. And again, coming back to the average job, which is not life or death. Mm. So don't take everything so seriously. Have fun. Look after each other. Don't burn out. Just, you know, do your job, do it well, and then have time for your family and for yourself. Fantastic. So that's, uh, I I like the idea of that. Like fun obviously appeals to me in a general sense, but I think I like that in terms of that's a nice balance. So the the sort of seriousness of the other things that you've spoken to to today, you know, there's some quite sort of heavy terms, you know, around authenticity and belonging and so forth. It's like, okay, there's there's fun in this as well. And if we can create that in a a way that helps, you know, relieve some of that pressure, that's one way of doing it. And I mean, you, you've talked a lot, uh, you know, you use these kind of concepts and you've talked about, you know, the, the Afghan experience. But, you know, um, I, I was first uh, recommended to talk to you by, by Gemma Sunis, who uh, it was in a global leadership role in, in Methanex. So, you know, I'm kind of like, OK, so clearly what you, what you do um, and what you bring to organisations is sort of recognised um, as having a sort of business benefit beyond that. So... Tell us about the sort of work you do with organisations. You know, what what are the sort of things you're looking to help organisations achieve and, you know, where do they kind of feel they get the best benefit from working with someone like yourself? Yeah, sure. So I I help businesses to improve organisational outcomes. Mm -hmm. So things like, you know, staff retention. Mm -hmm. Staff uh, organisations at the moment are struggling with that. So I help help organisations. I try to help them change their thinking or open their mind to some creative and different ways to do things so that they can retain their staff, which is necessary, Uh, help them to improve productivity. Um, Another big one is to help them increase their representation of women. Right. You know, there is um, so much research to say why that is a commercially smart (laughs) thing to do. And so I, you know, a lot of my leadership expertise is in the 
the kind of the gender space yes. or how to improve the representation of women, which, by the way, is not at the expense of men. <laughs> yes. Making things better for women is also good for men. So they're the kind of things I help organisations with. So basically improving their business performance mm. through better leadership, better staff retention, better productivity, better representation of women. And that's sort of the, the commercial goals. But I do it through a social lens. So right. I, I want to make the world better for people. I, I really do. And I, I think these two things align. I think mm. we can create workplaces where where the people have better experiences. They are happier. They feel themselves. They feel valued. They feel that they have time for their family. And they can you know feel great and deliver great outcomes for organisations. And that's basically what I do. So I my business is as a speaker. So I kind of speak at events about some of these topics. Uh, I do leadership training workshops where I help leaders and managers for how they go about actually implementing some of this stuff in practice uh, and kind of consulting so help organizations with strategic planning around some of these concepts right that's that that's really you know you've you've touched on things there that are so important to our members you know uh, a lot of people have recognized that it's so challenging to to recruit staff at the moment that actually we really need to focus attention on on retention and what can we do about that and that um, I can leads to quite often conversations are about leadership and what sort of leadership do we want in this organization that will make sure we retain people in fact how can we grow our own leaders within the organization to there and I'll be making best use of the full talent pool we have which I think speaks to your, your sort of gender uh, uh, work that you do there as well um, so look we, we've covered a, a lot a lot of ground really today and I'm, I'm sure uh, people I would be very interested to read the article that, that you mentioned. So what's the article called and how, how can they find that? Yeah, sure. So my website, yes. so ellenjoannelson.com. <laughs> um, and I've got, I think it's, I think this article might be on almost every tab, but it's, it's. I think it says something like, download my, uh, the leadership lessons uh, from the Afghanistan evacuation task. The title is something like that, yes. um, but it's on my website. And I've got, um, there's a media and publications tab, and there's quite a lot of other published articles there as well about uh, different ways of working. So there's the Afghanistan article, but there's also others around work school hours and, and other stuff. So, um, And I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook, so I'd love people to follow me. <laughs> right, so if people wanted to find out more about what you do, who um, perhaps are being caught, caught up today with the passion that you bring to it, <laughs> but want to see a bit more of the detail of it, yes. that, that would be the place to go to find that? Yeah, absolutely. My yeah. website, ellenjoannelson.com, has got lots of detail and my social media. Yeah. I've got to ask, these, these rap videos, are they there too? <laughs> uh, actually, so no, the ones I made for my team, no, they are, they are just for the team. But I'm such a dick, I don't know why I'm sharing this. So when I was eight months pregnant with my second child, I made a ridiculous rap video about being pregnant. And yeah, that's on my YouTube channel, right? which is also the same name, Dr. Ellen Joan Nelson. So... Very good. Yeah. Well, I, I wasn't I actually expecting to see that, but uh, I, I think I'll be going and looking to that for that later today <laughs> my, myself. Um, but look, I just, uh, I'm so glad you came in. You know, there's so much passion that you bring to this and um, such depth of experience um, that, um, you know, I, I'm sure that this will make a lot of difference to a lot of organisations, both in terms of the work you directly do, but also I think just in getting people to think around, around these areas that are the really important about autonomy in, in the business, about sense of belonging focusing on purpose and focusing on productivity 
So um, obviously, I'd like to thank you so much for coming in. I've really, really enjoyed uh, he hearing from you today. Um, and obviously, um, you know, in terms of within this podcast, we have, um, you've heard from Ellen about how directly to go and, and find out about her uh, further work that she's done. And we will put a link uh, to that for, for you to go to. Um, and within this podcast series, we are very interested to know, um, you know, what other issues uh, people would like us to explore more. We certainly know that uh, leadership and culture and engagement in organisations are important. And uh, I think we've been very lucky today to hear from somebody with a lot of passion and experience around that. Um, but if there's other topics or you want to know more about these, please, please do let, let us know. Um, so uh, once again, thank you very much, Ellen, for today. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for, for listening for today's podcast. Thank you all.